Hello, this is Dr. Baker and welcome to EC Tech Talk. Welcome to the eighth episode of ECE Tech Talk, brought to you by the Bradley Department of Virginia Tech. I'm Dwan Wanjara. And I'm Mike Rani, and we'll be your host for today. So our guest for today is Dr. Joseph Baker. Currently, he's an associate professor at the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering at Virginia Tech, and is the co-principal investigator for the SuperDarn project and for major instrument development. He's also an associate professor for space at VT. Dr. Baker is an active researcher and has published several journal articles since joining Virginia Tech. He receives amongst the highest ratings in the department, even though he teaches difficult material in the two-semester undergraduate electromagnetic field sequence required of all electrical engineering students. He has been named the Stefano Lane Junior Faculty Fellow of Electrical and Computer Engineering by the Virginia Tech Board of Visitors, which is presented to a junior faculty member for teaching and research excellence. Hello, Dr. Baker. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, my pleasure. Yeah. So do you have anything else to add to my introduction? Some uh, uh, no. further, maybe? No, no. I mean, that's, uh, yeah. I mean, that's so let me, who let I am. Me, let me start with a simple question. Do you, do you like space? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I love space. Yeah. yeah. Recently, I've really been into um, stargazing and stuff. Since there's not a lot of uh, stuff to do with me and my friends. We've been going stargazing and stuff. Do you do enjoy doing that? Yeah. Um, so when I was, uh, I, I first became interested in space probably in middle school, I guess. Um, and yeah, looking up at the stars and, um, and wondering about how far away they are and how big the universe is, all that good stuff. And so um, originally I wanted to become an astronomer and, you know, look at the stars and understand the stars and, and um, so that's what I had in mind as my career initially. Um, but along the way, I, I changed my mind and I decided to focus on our own star. So cool. um, is, that, is that why you studied physics for your undergrad? Yeah. So um, my um, high school physics teacher told me that um, in order to become an astronomer, I should major in physics as an undergrad and then, um, and then do um, graduate work in, in astronomy. Um, and so that's what I did. And uh, of course, I'm, uh, I've always been interested in, in physics for its own sake. Um, but yeah, like I said, I, uh, I kind of decided that learning about stars and things way, way away um, is maybe not as cool and exciting as learning more about our own star, which is in our neighborhood that, um, you know, produces space weather effects in near-Earth space. So that's, that's what I do now. It's, uh, so space science is more closer to the home planet. Uh, it's the science of the solar system and the, the, the planets in the solar system, but also the space between the planets. And that's what I'm interested in. The stuff that most people think of as cold and empty and nothing there, there's actually a lot going on. Um, and so that's what we study. The stuff well, between so, us and the sun. So it's extremely fascinating. Um, so you said you studied physics in your undergrad at University of New England in Australia. Is that correct? That's right. Uh, yeah, I grew, I grew up in a, a, a small town similar to Blacksburg, a place called Armadale. Um, and it has the University of New England there. And my father was a professor at the university. And so, um, yeah, I watched my father, um, you know, over the years. And I thought he seems to have a pretty good lifestyle um, being an academic. And so, um, but I, uh, and so I decided to follow that aspect of him. But uh, um, he... His, his uh, professional discipline was um, Latin love poetry. So he was an expert on, on Roman 
poets writing poems about uh, their mistresses. That's very interesting. <laughs> yeah, so completely so, different from what you do, actually. Yeah, very, very different. Yeah, uh, I was a bit, I was a bit of a, a wild card in the family. So, you know, both my my parents studied classics and ancient history, and I have two brothers who are artists, and I have um, one brother who is a chef, and I'm I'm sort of the science engineering geek. Yeah, that's a really that, that's family. a great family background. Um, so you said you, you were interested in, in space and astronomy at a very young age. Was there any engineering in the future that you saw in yourself, maybe as some problem solving capabilities? Uh, no, I kind of, I've kind of fallen into the engineering since I came to Virginia Tech. I'm, uh, I'm a bit of a fraud, truth be told, when it comes to engineering. <laughs> um, that said, uh, so, so most engineers, I guess they, you know, uh, you're solving a problem, right? And somebody gives you the problem to solve and you solve it. Um, what we do in our group, we, we're interested in space science, right? The science of space. Um, but in order to get data to analyze, to try and understand space, then you need to have engineering platforms to collect that data. And so that's what we do. So we use engineering as the tool to get the data that we want to um, do the science that we need to do. Awesome. So you just mentioned your group. What is your group for the users, for the listeners? Yeah. So you mentioned that in the preamble at the beginning, SuperDAN. So SuperDAN is uh, an acronym. Uh, the DARN, D-A-R-N, uh, stands for Dual Auroral Radar Network. And then the super is added to the front just because it's kind of awesome. Um, <laughs> but uh, Dual Auroral Radar Network, so it's a, it's a worldwide um, consortium of research groups um, that build uh, HF radars for probing the upper atmosphere. Um, a, a region of the up, upper atmosphere is, um, is ionized. We call it the ionosphere. It starts at altitudes of about 80 kilometers, um, maximizes at altitudes of 250 to 300 kilometers. And so the sun's activity manifests itself in the ionosphere as, um, you know, uh, plasma processes and electric fields mapping down from space. And so our radar systems collect data that allow us to understand the weather system, the space weather system in the um, ionosphere above our heads. That's what we do. That's very interesting. So what brought your interest in the Superdome project? I saw, if I'm correct, you moved to Virginia Tech from Johns Hopkins University just because the team moved here? That's right. So I got my PhD in atmospheric and space science at the University of Michigan. And uh, as a graduate student, I was analyzing um, images of the aurora taken from spacecraft um, and then combining that with um, uh, ground instruments on uh, making um, magnetic uh, measurements. So ground magnetometers measuring magnetic fluctuations produced by electric currents in the ionosphere and then trying to relate that to the, the disturbance pattern that you see in the, in the visible aurora. Um, and so I graduated and then I moved to Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory as a postdoctoral fellow. And that's when I started to become involved in the Superdome project because um, so my, my uh, postdoctoral advisor was a guy called Ray Greenwald and he designed the, the Superdome system back in the early 1980s. And so at, at um, Johns Hopkins, there was a group of about five of us doing Superdome science. Um, uh, analyzing data, uh, building new radars. And so what happened was in 2007, we started to think about building a new radar in Virginia. We'd already built one at the Wallops 
um, Island. There's a, there's a, uh, NASA has a flight facility at Wallops Island on the Eastern shore. And we built a radar there and we, and that one looks out over the ocean. And we wanted to build a second radar looking inland. And, um, and we knew people at Virginia Tech, and, and uh, so we approached uh, people we knew at Virginia Tech and said, hey, do you think you might be able to find some Virginia Tech land that we could build a radar on? And, um, and so we, we, and, and they identified um, there's an agricultural research and extension center at Blackstone, Virginia. And so in 2008, we built a radar as a collaboration between Johns Hopkins University and Virginia Tech um, at Blackstone. And in the process of that collaboration, um, uh, the, the, uh, the Space at VT Center was just getting off the ground and the, the new director of Space at VT, Wayne Scales, approached us and he said, I've talked to the provost at Virginia Tech and he's willing to offer you guys faculty positions if you're interested in moving to Virginia Tech. And so that's kind of how it started. It started as an organic collaboration, scientist to scientists, and then basically Virginia Tech poached us away from Johns Hopkins University is kind of how it went down that's a, that's <laughs> truth a cool be told story so that was 2008 you said you've been uh, yeah yeah so we've we've been so what happened was um three super known scientists uh moved to virginia tech myself and uh microhonomy took faculty positions and then ray greenwald took a um he sort of stepped back he had been the leader of the project and he's now semi-retired so he's he's part-time research professor now on the, on the on the faculty at virginia tech and um and so, yeah, we, um, and it's interesting because I've been thinking about this recently. Our operation is a bit different from most um, faculty operations. So most faculty get hired at a university as individuals, right? It's, uh, there's a position and I apply for the position. And then um, I, I come and I, I'm given some startup money and I open a lab and I start to recruit graduate students and maybe postdoctoral fellows. But most, you know, and they might be in a center and they're collaborating with other people, but at the end of the day, they're kind of a lone wolf researcher with you know um, students and postdocs. Um, but right from the time we arrived, we've sort of maintained uh, a coherent group uh, the way that we had at Johns Hopkins University. Because when we were at Johns Hopkins, it was a, a the applied uh, physics uh, laboratory, and and um, and that's so we weren't teaching; we were just doing research, writing grant proposals to get money to fund us to do the research. And, um, and so that environment, uh, scientists sort of collaborate and sort of um, write grant proposals together and, 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 and it's a very close knit, it can be a very close knit collaboration similar to what you might find in a law office where you have a law practice and you've got, you know, maybe half a dozen or a dozen um, lawyers that are all working in the same company and, and they're sharing resources. and. And so that, that was kind of the environment we came from. And we've tried to maintain that sort of, so for instance, um, we co, Microhonomy and myself, we co-supervise all of our graduate students um, and, um, and postdoctoral fellows. And, and so we, we share things as a true partnership rather than a loose collaboration. So you just mentioned that you weren't teaching at John Hopkins, that's correct? Yeah, that was that was the main incentive for moving to Virginia Tech was to get students involved with our research. Yeah, so that's what I wanted to um, bring about. Did you were you excited at the prospect of teaching students and taking a professor role? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the other advantage. So, like I said, when when you're at a in, in a so-called soft money situation, 
um, you are working at an institution, uh, it could be a government lab or, or a university lab, as it was at Johns Hopkins University. But the, the basic model is that they give you a desk and they provide you administrative support. But at the end of the day, it's up to you to write enough grant proposals to cover your salary, right? And um, whereas being at Virginia Tech, because I teach, uh, the university pays three quarters of my salary. Mm -hmm. So now I only have to find research money to pay for the research that I do over the summer um, and also for the graduate students that we, we fund as well. And so there was a lot more job security moving to Virginia Tech, not having to worry about where my money's coming from a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, that sort of thing. Absolutely. So let me ask you this. Your role in Superdarn is that as an associate professor or is your role as an associate professor in space at VT? So I'm an associate professor um, at the university. Um, so when, when I came in, I was an assistant professor without tenure. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so for the first five years, I was kind of on, on a probationary sort of appointment, um, renewed on a two-year sort of schedule. And then uh, during the fifth year, and this is any, any assistant professor who's admitted to the faculty at Virginia Tech, during the fifth year, you have to submit a what's called a tenure dossier. And it's, it's basically everything about me um, and why I think I deserve a, a permanent tenure position at the, at the university. And so that's then evaluated within the department and within the college. And then it goes all the way up to the Board of Visitors. And that process takes a full academic year. And then at the end, um, you're either told, yes, we want to keep you and we will promote you to associate professor, or we've decided you're not a good fit for Virginia Tech and maybe you need to go somewhere else. And that's how it works. And then, and then um, time marches on and you do more research and more teaching. And then at some point you decide to uh, get promoted to full professor. And then it's a similar process. You submit a dossier and it gets evaluated and they either say, yes, we agree that you should be promoted to full professor or, or maybe you need to wait a bit longer. Um, but yeah, my, my, my classification as associate professor is based on, on everything I do. It's based on my teaching, it's based on my research, and it's also based on my service to the academic community at large. So, you know, um, uh, serving on panels for NASA and the NSF, organizing workshops, um, uh, these, these sorts of um, uh, things that are uh, being a good academic citizen to my wider research community, which in my case is the space science research community. So those, those are the three things that go into evaluating, uh, 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 you know, um, an academic is uh, research, teaching and service. Absolutely. Awesome. So I'm um, going back to the super darn group. How big is it? How many universities are involved? How many students? How many professors? Oh, okay. So, so uh, yeah, it started in 1983. Ray Greenwald built the first um, super darn style radar at a place called Goose Bay in Labrador, Canada. And then the British became involved. They said, Hey, that's an, that's an interesting design. Do you mind if we share that? Cause we, we've got a base down in Antarctica that we'd like to build a similar radar at. And so they built an, uh, a radar in Antarctica and then the French became involved. The Canadians became involved. Um, in the, uh, and then the Scandinavians came involved, uh, fin Finnish. Um, and um, in the Southern hemisphere, the Australians became involved, South Africa. Um, and so, now I, I, I keep losing track. It's more than 35 radars worldwide. 
and um, participation from research groups from more than a dozen countries. It's fascinating yeah. history. So you only take graduate students in your research group or do you also take undergraduate students? We take undergraduates. I mean, so, you know, when, when, when students approach us, uh, be they un undergraduates or graduates, you know, that, so what's the benefit of having students? So students come, they, they help us do our research and then they write scientific papers that get published. That's how we're evaluated. That's how we measure our successes, the number of research publications that come out of what we do. And so whenever uh, graduate students approach us, that's what we're thinking. We're thinking, what publications can we collaborate on with this person? With undergraduates, we wouldn't expect that. But um, what we're really looking for in undergraduates is we're hoping to flip undergraduates into graduate students. That's, that's really the game plan is, hey, we'll get you interested in this stuff and then we'll try and talk you into staying on and, and you know, getting a master's degree and, and hopefully a PhD. Um, but yeah, we... We're, we're, we're smaller than we have been. We, the group is relatively small right now because times have been difficult. Mm -hmm. um, we have, uh, right now, we only have one graduate student, one undergraduate student, and two postdocs. So we're a pretty streamlined organization right now. Um, but the undergraduate that we've got working with us, he's doing a mixture of hardware. Uh, he's helping us um, uh, repair transmitters at our radars and um, do a bit of testing and prototyping. Um, but he's also starting to analyze data. Um, and so that's, that's what we tend to, that's what, that's our, like I said before, that's our main focus um, is um, uh, keeping our radar operation running uh, smoothly and efficiently so that we continue to collect data that we can analyze in conjunction with other space science data sets to try and understand how space weather works, basically. Absolutely. So I'm sure you would like to widen your team. So for any of the listeners who are interested in joining your team, how do they reach out to you? Do they just email you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it, 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 it starts with a, a kind of a prolonged dance. So anybody that's interested um, can send me an email. The more targeted the email is, the better. Um, I get a lot of dear professor emails <laughs> um, and straight away that tells you, how interested the person is in, in, in working with you. So, you know, a, a proper dear Dr. Baker, uh, I know this about what you do and, and I'm interested in doing this and, um, and that. And, and then based on that, I'll, I'll then respond and say, well, the first step is that you come in and we have a sit down and I tell you what I do and, and what opportunities there might be. And then, and then, um, uh, you know, maybe somebody comes in and, and talks to one of our graduate students and the graduate student carves off something that can be done and, you know, with a, a, a bit of, you know, maybe a handful of hours a week over a period of a couple of months and then we see where that leads, right? Absolutely. Because um, at the end of the day, it has to be, it has to be a relationship that works both sides, you know, uh, the students getting something out of it and we're getting something out of it. Um, and... Oftentimes I find that people are very interested early in the semester, but then as the semester goes on, you know, other things get in the way. Um, and so we're not looking for, for um, an immediate, um, uh, you know, bang for the buck for want of a better phrase, but, you know, uh, interest that, tend, that, that seems to be increasing over time that then suggests that there's something that might be nurtured there and, and bear fruit further down the line. And I think that's what most professors are looking for. Yeah. Sure. So first, is it okay if you put your mail down in our bio so our listeners can reach out to you? 
Sure. Yeah. All right. And so let's talk about some of the experiences you have with undergrad, maybe a cool project the undergrad's taken, some awesome stories from them that you might have to share with us. Some awesome stories. I don't know if I've got awesome stories, but um, uh, so, yeah. So when I, I arrived at Virginia Tech and you mentioned it in the, in the preamble there that uh, the first few years I was here, I started um, teaching the um, junior electromagnetics, um, you know, 3105 and 3106. And I did that for a couple of years and um, quite enjoyed that because that, you know, I, I had to run the same gauntlet of fire when I was an undergraduate myself. Um, but then after I'd been here a couple of years, the space at VT Center was, was ramping up and, and there was a lot of activity developing new courses at the graduate level. And so I decided to develop an introductory space science class because I only found out about space science during my final year of college. I took a class um, uh, with a, an emeritus professor, it was called Solar Terrestrial Physics, and he started with the, with the physics of the sun and solar activity, sunspots and solar flares and coronal mass ejections, and then how that then permeates the solar system via the solar wind, and it interacts with the planets and produces aurora and, and um, uh, space weather disturbances that can impact the, the, the power grid and kill satellites and this sort of stuff. And so I was taking this class, it was during my senior year, I was like, why didn't I know about this stuff? You know, uh, I, I, everybody knows about astronomy, but um, at that time, you know, and, and now space weather is kind of making the news every now and then on CNN, it'll be like there's a big flare that just happened and there might be bright aurora. But when I took that class in the 1980s, I had no idea that the sun was anything more than just a glowing ball at the center of the, the solar system. And that's all it did, it shone light, right? but it's actually spewing stuff continually into space that interacts with the planets. And that's what space weather is. And so when I arrived at Virginia Tech, I was like, why don't I design a course that I would have liked to have taken as a sophomore that told me about space weather early enough that I might've taken some, you know, chosen other classes that might've been more relevant. So I designed a course, it's uh, EC 2164, Exploration of the Space Environment. And I started teaching that I think in 2012 and around that time, uh, on our Space at VT advisory board, there was a guy called Dennis Sweeney, and I can't remember which company he was working for, but he was up in Northern Virginia, you know, one of the aerospace companies. And he was an ECE, uh, 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 VT ECE grad. And he decided to retire and move back to Blacksburg, and he became the, um, the director of undergraduate labs. And so he approached me and he said, you know, this new class that you're, you're, you're teaching, wouldn't it do you think it might be a good idea if we had a, a, a hands-on component to that? Um, and he had this idea of uh, using weather balloons, right? Where the students um, design a payload to fly on a weather balloon and it goes up into the upper atmosphere and it takes some data. And, and, um, and so we collaborated on that. Um, the, you know, so in the class 2164, I had the students do a course project and I gave them options. You can do a very simple course project, which is basically a book report. You just find, you research something and you find information on the internet or in books, and then you write it up as a book report. It would be better if you did something which was a bit more analytical. So, you know, analyzing some data or of some sort, um, maybe do, uh, doing a simulation or something, or you can participate on this balloon project. And so the first year we did it, I think there were half a dozen students that did it. And that ran for, maybe four or five years until Dennis retired. And that was fun because um, 
you know, I teach the, the students during the, the dry lecture period and then the balloon group would meet, uh, you know, once or twice a week and, and um, try and figure out, you know, how to, how to get, get this um, payload ready and, and integrated and tested in time to get some results before the end of the semester. So that was a cool experience. And then um, uh, added to that, uh, I then found some other equipment, some uh, VLF receiver equipment um, that was designed out of the at Stanford University. Um, and then um, got some uh, other students in, uh, involved on that, uh, building an antenna to collect data and then analyzing the data. Um, so that's one example of uh, trying to uh, take what you're teaching in the classroom and add an extra element that's not too onerous for the students that aren't interested in it, but can add a tactile sort of gee whiz component to those students that are interested in that, um, that sort of meshing theory with practical application sort of stuff. Yeah. This is a great segue um, to your teaching. And how would you describe your teaching? You just, you just explain, you just give a, a, a example of you trying to add heads, hands on components to it. How else would you describe your teaching styles and preferences? Um, yeah, so my, what I try to do with teaching is I try to figure out what, what is it that the students need to know and then I try and remember what it was like learning that material myself, what the stumbling blocks were. Um, and I, yeah, I try to, I try to figure out, I try to remember what, what the sticking points were and then try to do a better job at that than I think that my professors did with me. Um, so that's one thing. Um, I try to be very complete with, with, uh, you know, so I, when I first arrived, I was teaching on a chalkboard and so I would have hand scratched notes and, you know, I'd get through three pages of hand scratched notes and I tried to make each lecture sort of self-contained as much as possible. And, and, um, and I, I've now since moved to PowerPoint and PowerPoint is a lot more efficient and you can uh, use graphical sort of, you know, movies and, and, and pictures and stuff. And, and you can cover uh, material at a faster rate with PowerPoint. But there again, I try to make each lecture as contained as possible and each lecture build upon the previous lecture. And so I guess when I'm in the, when I'm in the classroom teaching, I'm trying to, to teach by telling a story as much as possible. And if you think about telling a story, there's a structure to a good story, right? There's an introductory part where people don't know what the story is about yet and you're gently introducing them to the, the big idea of what the story is. And then in the middle, it gets more detailed, but it builds on what you had in the introduction. And then at the end, there's some sort of hook in the end that makes the person want to watch the next episode. And so I try to do that um, with, you know, it's the same thing with telling a good joke, right? You, when, when you're listening to somebody telling a good joke, there's something about the way they're telling it that, that engages you and wants, wants and, and it makes you want to keep listening. And I know that lectures can be very dry, you know, and you can start to snooze if there's, if there's not enough entertaining stuff that's going on. And so, yeah, th those are the two things that I, I would say I try to do with my teaching. I try to have everything logically organized and complete 
so that at the end of the day, my goal is that the students don't need to go to the, the, the textbook to know what I, I want them to know, that the material that I teach them in class is all they need to know. I try to do that as much as possible, but then try and, and make it, you know, palatable. <laughs> Add a few jokes here and there and, and um, try and wake them up when they start to snooze, yeah. So storytelling, you know, storytelling, and to be, yeah, I mean, uh, that's that's the role of a, of a good lecturer, I think, is to be entertaining as sure, much as you, possible. You've been a good storyteller today, and <laughs> I think good storytelling is basically literature and poetry, isn't it? So you're basically like your dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and maybe, back. maybe, yeah, maybe circling back to that. Yeah, maybe, maybe it's a left brain, right brain, and trying to, uh, you know, mesh both sides of the brain. Um, you know, what, what, one thing I will say. Um, is that uh, I, I do I do remember what it was like being a, an undergraduate student and struggling with stuff. You know, I, I've I've gotten where I am through hard work and diligence and and really sort of questioning everything I've been taught. Uh, you know, I, I'd sit next to some students and and they, you know, particularly heavy math classes. Right, some students just get it. It's like uh, yeah, math. It's 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 like music or or language. I I just totally get it. Um, I always struggled with math, you know, it, for me, I had to have a visual picture of what's going on, you know, in, in terms of the physics of what's, what's happening. Um, and so I think when I'm teaching, I tend to be pitching to the middle of the bell curve. Uh, you know, there are people at the top and, and they're going to get an A regardless of what I try and teach them. And then there are people that are struggling. And then there are people in the middle, right at the hump of the bell curve. That's, that's where I tend to pitch most of my material is to those folks. I know that there are some professors that basically teach to themselves, right? It's like, I'm, <laughs> I'm, teaching, I'm teaching the material as if I'm the person in the classroom, right? But you're the person that already knows this stuff and you've gotten past it. So I think it's important to try and, um, you know, so I, like I said, I, I pitch to the middle of the bell curve, but I make it clear that if you're, if you're on the lagging part of that bell curve and you want extra help, then then come and see me. I'm happy to work with anybody, um, you know, and, and likewise with the people at the top end of the bell curve where maybe I'm boring them. I say, come and come and talk to me and we, we can, <laughs> we can, um, you know, geek out as much as you want, you know? Um, Absolutely. yeah, but, um, you know, and, and it is, it is a challenge because, you know, I have my teaching style and, and it seems to be effective for the majority of students, but I've learned over the years that some students love you. And some students absolutely hate you, you know, and that's just, that's just the way it works. And, and sometimes, you know, sometimes they might hate you because they're not trying and they're trying to blame you for their deficiencies. But, and I think that, that, that sometimes happens, but it's also the case that, you know, some students are like, I find that guy boring. Everybody else seems to like his style, but I find him boring. And there's just no accounting for taste. You know, that's just, that's just part of the way it works. And so, you know, I try to, I try to, uh, adapt my approach as much as possible if I feel that it's not working. Um, but at the end of the day, you can't please everybody in the room. It's just not going to happen. Absolutely. Unfortunately. So you mentioned your teaching style is related to what you said in an undergrad, but, and I presume you did your undergrad and your early education in Australia. So how different is the education system here from what it is there? Uh, yeah, there's a few, there's a few differences. Uh, I think most of it's manifested in the, in the middle school and high schools though. Um, I'll take mathematics for instance. So when, when my kids started um, 
taken um, mathematics, they were taking classes like Algebra 1 and Algebra 2 and Trigonometry 1 and Trigonometry 2. And it was like a whole year of Algebra 1. <laughs> and, then, and then, whereas in Australia, we would take Algebra for like a month. And then we would do a month of Trigonometry. And then we would do a month of something else. And so it was more of a cycling through things a month at a time. And, and um, uh, whereas here in, in the schools, it seems to be structured more like a college class, you know, where it's a single topic. It's not just math, it's algebra or trigonometry or calculus. Whereas we just, yeah, we just, we just touch on each of them and it would be like a spiral where you're starting with the basics on each of them and then you're coming back. And, and so it was a bit more of a, oh, I see how that fits with that thing that we did. I don't know. It's, it's just different. Um, I don't know which is better. Um, I just, I just think it'd, it'd be miserable if you had a, if your math teacher during algebra one was not very good and you just totally missed the boat on algebra and never recovered from it, you know? Um, but yeah, so I, I think, uh, and, 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 and that kind of transferred to a lot of the other subjects too, that it was a bit more of mixing disciplines together um, so, uh, and, and my school was maybe a little different, um, from others, but we took a, we took a course called humanities, which was a mixture of geography, English, and history. And so instead of taking dry separate stuff in those three subjects, you, we would, um, look at a particular, um, thing from the context of history, geography, and, um, what was the other one I said? History, geography, and English. And so for instance, one topic might be the Australian gold rush which happened in like the 1860s, 1870s. And so you'd learn about the poetry that came out of the gold rush and you'd learn about the geography of, and the, and the, the geology of the gold rush area and, and, um, and the history of the gold rush and, you know, the key uh, events in the gold rush. And so it was, you were doing history, geography and English all at the same time in this concept of, of the gold rush or, or some other thing. Yeah. Interesting. So talking a little more about Australia, what part of Australia are you from? Uh, so like I said before, my hometown is a place called Armidale. It's named after a Scottish village in the highlands of Scotland. Um, so the, the guy that explored that area in the early 1800s was from, from uh, uh, Scotland. Um, so it's a sheep grazing area. Um, it has similarities to Blacksburg. It's not as hill. It, it, it's sort of rolling hills rather than sort of rugged hills like they are, there are around here. But um, last time I checked the population of Armidale, it was about twenty-five thousand people. Um, it's about a twenty-minute drive to the next place, which is about three thousand people, and then it's another hour to the next place. Literally an hour driving through nothing <laughs> until you get to the next place, and that's about fifty thousand people. So it's it's fairly. Fairly, fairly rural and isolated. Um, and then there's a university there. It started as a college of the University of Sydney, um, but became an independent university back in the 1950s, I think. And I think right now it has maybe 5,000 students there. Um, yeah, so that's my hometown. And so that's in, um, in Eastern Australia. The state is New South Wales. So uh, my hometown is about a six hour drive north of Sydney and a six hour drive south of Brisbane. So it's halfway between those two, but it's, it's about, and it's about a three hour drive to the coast. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little unusual. So uh, nine, more than 90% of Australians live within, you know, 50 kilometers of the beach. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm a little further away from the beach. 
So most, most, um, yeah, a lot of people, when they meet me, it's like, oh, you must be a, a wicked surfer. And I'm like, no, I can't surf for nuts. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. What motivated you to come to the U.S. to pursue a uh, PhD here? Was it the Super Darn team? Did you know about it? No, no. So, like I said, I, um, I wanted to be an astronomer. And then I, I spent my, uh, 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 the summer before my senior year working at an observatory outside of Canberra in Australia analyzing some um, data of a globular cluster and it was really really boring i hated it totally hated it and i was like whoa what am i going to do now i want to be an astronomer and i've just had my taste of astronomy and it sucks right um and so then i went back uh, for my final year and that's when i took the class on solar terrestrial physics and i was like yeah this is what i want to do it's it's useful astronomy it's the astronomy of our own star and its impact on our planet rather than these boring stars in this globular cluster, you know, light years away that nobody really cares about. Um, and so then I thought, well, okay, like I said before, I didn't even know that space science was a discipline. And so I researched it and I found out, well, if I'm serious about that, I uh, really need to go to the United States. But the other thing that I'd become interested in was the history of physics, because like I said before, when I was struggling with the material, you know, and, and in physics, uh, one of the more um, uh, problematic uh, disciplines is um, quantum mechanics, which is, you know, sort of the new physics of the early 20th century with guys like Heisenberg and Schrodinger. And they had to design this whole new mathematical framework to, to describe the mechanics of subatomic particles. And it's very cumbersome and counterintuitive. And, and I found myself in the middle of these quantum mechanics lectures, struggling to understand what the professor was teaching me. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, I'm having trouble understanding this material and he's trying his best to teach it to me. And I'm thinking, how did somebody invent this horrible stuff in the first place, right? Where did this come from? Why, why does somebody decide that we need this? And so I went to the library and I started looking through books, trying to understand it. And I became interested in just the, the, these guys, you know, Werner Heisenberg and Niels Bohr and, and Erwin Schrodinger and, and um, you know, I, I, Einstein, of course. And so I became interested in the, the, the way that science evolves, you know, question asked, question answered, new question raised, new answer, you know, that, that sort of cycle of, question and answer leading to more questions and more questions. And, and, um, and so I, I, I was sort of torn, you know, I want to do the space science or do I want to do the history of physics? And, um, there was a program at Cambridge university that, um, I was interested in doing the history of, of physics. And so I was at that crossroads and I thought, well, what, what am I going to do? So I put a backpack on and I took a break and I went traveling for three years to think about it. Absolutely. And, um, and I traveled to Canada and ended up in Kenya teaching at a school. This is a long-winded answer to your question, but I'm getting around to the why I ended up in the United States. And the reason why is I, I was teaching at this school in Africa and I met this lady that, and we hit it off and um, we ended up getting married and she's from Pittsburgh. So that's, that's why I ended up in the United States. She, so the, the idea of going to Cambridge and learning about the history of physics sort of took a back seat to coming to the United States and, and, um, and becoming a space scientist and, and um, marrying my sweetheart from Pittsburgh, yeah. That's a great story. 
Yeah, and so I looked at programs, I applied to various programs, and what, what appealed to me about the program at Michigan was that it was interdisciplinary. So the, the department I was in there was the Department of Atmospheric, Oceanic, and Space Science. And, um, and so it was this sort of whole planet sort of um, uh, uh, thing, which is, which is of interest to me, yeah. Well, let's get some recommendations from you regarding some movies or shows or books you're into recently to keep yourself entertained. Uh, well, okay. So I have two sons and, um, I like to watch movies with both of my sons. Um, so my, my older son who's here in the house with me right now, uh, we've been watching scary movies. So that's what we tend to do, you know, try and find, you know, uh, so the, um, you know, recommendations for the scariest movies on Netflix, that sort of thing. Um, so we watched one the other night called Orphan, which was pretty good. Uh, we watched a classic from cheesy one from the 1970s called The Wicker Man, um, which was an interesting one. Um, and so that's what I do with him. Uh, whenever he's in town, we, we, we have a sort of horror movie festival. Uh, my younger son, um, he, ever since he was a little guy, he was, uh, he's, he was interested in sort of Japanese anime sort of stuff. It started with Pokemon cards and, and then moved on to watching anime. And, and um, I actually had a sabbatical um, three years ago, um, and I was offered a position at, um, Nagoya university and, um, uh, it was sort of late in the, in, in, in the day I, I, I decided my original plan was to have my sabbatical here in Blacksburg and just sort of get caught up on research. But then, uh, one of my Japanese superdown colleagues approached me and he said, Hey, you should come and spend some time, uh, working with us and we can collaborate on some stuff. And so I thought about it. I thought, okay, sabbatical in um in japan i could maybe bring my youngest son with me and he could go to school in japan for a semester and we could live together in japan and the reason i, I was excited at that prospect is that my father had a sabbatical when i was six years old and we 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 moved to britain for a year we spent six months in in um in scotland and then six months in in kent outside of london and even though i was only six years at the time that really stayed with me you know, uh, um, going to school in a foreign country. Um, and so when, when I put this to my son, he, he was initially a bit um, apprehensive about it. But um, when we explained to him that he'd be going to an international school where they spoke English anyway, he was all over it. So again, long-winded answer, but um, uh, we have this Japanese connection, my, my youngest son. And so when he's in town, we watch old Japanese samurai movies. Awesome, but yeah. did you end up going to the sabbatical in Japan with your, yes, with your yes. younger son? Yes, yes, yeah. We li we lived in Nagoya for for six months, and we travelled all around the country. We went to Hiroshima and Kyoto and Tokyo, and yeah, we had a fantastic time. And so, what? yeah, when he's in town, we 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 watch Japanese movies together. Yeah, how sabbatical was, in Tokyo. How different was the teaching experience there from what it is here, or was it similar? How different was which experience? The sabbatical experience. Going uh, well, it was different. So, so I was just doing research all the time. I didn't have to worry about teaching. It was, and um, the great thing was, you know, um, over time, uh, email has just gotten so onerous. You know, there was a time when I was at Johns Hopkins University, I had my computer in my office at the, at the lab and I would uh, work a, a, a full day. I'd get in, you know, sometime between seven thirty and eight, and I'd leave sometime between five and six. And when I locked my office door and turned my back on my office and went home, that was the end of it, right? 
I went home and I had dinner and I played with my kids and I watched TV and, and hung out with my wife and, and there was nothing getting in the way of just being a normal person at home during the evening. Um, but then I got my first laptop when I joined Virginia Tech and now it's just, yeah, you can't get away from work. And so the great thing about being in Japan was it's a, it's a 12 hour time difference, right? So I would wake up at like seven in the morning and it's seven in the evening here. And so the whole day's email would be just there waiting for me, right? It doesn't dribble in during the day and distract you with sort of something has to be an action item right now. And can you drop everything to take care of it? It was, and I, it was, it was interesting. I'd take a deep breath and I'd open my laptop and, and I'd go to the Gmail and, and I'd close my eyes and I'd think, you know, is there, are there going to be five messages, 50 messages or 500 messages? You know, what, 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 what is it that I have to deal with before? And, and then I would open it up and yeah, there'd be a lot of messages there. But the interesting thing was that a lot of them, I'd look at it and it was something that started early in the day and it evolved during the day and it got resolved by the end of the day. <laughs> and so it was too late. It was too late for me to weigh in anyway. That's right. actually the best part. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and some of it I just look at and it's like, oh, they don't care what I, what I think anyway. And, and, and they're all going to bed while I'm waking up. And so that was really nice was just, um, yeah, talk about a breath of fresh air and just sort of resetting the clock and just getting back to basics. And that's, that's the way I, 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 if any of my academic colleagues are listening, that's the best way to have a sabbatical is go to a country which is 12 well, hours removed. 12 <laughs> hours removed is the best thing to do. Yeah. To speak to that, I emailed you last night at about 11.30 and you got back to me yeah, almost well, that's, instantly. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. We're yeah, I was slaves surprised. Our, we're, we're slaves to our devices. Yes, yes. it's really sad. It's really sad. So another recommendation I'm looking for is places to stargaze near Blacksburg. You know, I'm, I'm into it recently and I want to go with my friends. So some cool locations you go to maybe. Uh, well, no, I haven't really, I haven't really found any, any key spots around here that, I mean, just anywhere out, out away from uh, light pollution um, is, you know, um, uh, on top of a mountain. Uh, if, if you can find a road to the top of a mountain. Um, no, I haven't really done the, the hardcore stargazing here. I, I can relate, relate an experience that I had with my family a few years ago. We were in Hawaii on the Big Island. And on the Big Island, it's an interesting environment there because they get snow. It's, on the, you know, it's the most mountainous island. And they actually get snow on the top of that mountain. And so, you know, at, at any time of year because it's, you know, sort of um, uh, tropical. Um, but... Um, they have an observatory on the top of that, that mountain. And uh, well, there's two mountains, Mauna Kea and Mauna Loa. And then there's a saddle road that drives between these two mountains. And, um, and we uh, drove around the island to go and see this volcano around the coastal road. And then I timed it so that we would go up over the, over the, um, the saddle road. And I knew that it was going to be a, um, a moon free evening. And uh, thankfully, it was cloud-free too. And so I, I, I did that. We, we drove up and I got off the main road um, and drove far enough so that we weren't contaminated by headlights or any, anything around. And we just lay on our backs and looked up. And it reminded me of looking at the stars in my hometown because um, I think 
uh, at lower. Um, so around here, you don't really see the Milky Way the way we do in Australia. The, the Milky Way is just this, this, um, oh, it's this spray of stars that there's so many of them that it has this glow to it that, um, uh, you know, sort of a background glow to it. And that was, that was the first time my kids had really seen the sky that I grew up with. And that was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, the, the, the main thing is to get away from lights and be uh, in an elevated position. Be, yeah. Interesting. So I actually have a recommendation for you. You mentioned you're interested in the history of physics and stuff. Uh -huh. And I don't know if you've ever seen the docu-series, but it's called Genius. And it covers kind of like the life of Einstein okay. and his discovery and stuff. So it's on Hulu. So if you ever get the chance, maybe you'd be interested. And I really enjoyed that show. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll look that up. You, what would you call it? Genius? Genius. Yeah. It, Genius, it has yeah. a couple of seasons. One of them was about Pablo Picasso. The other one's Einstein. And the Einstein one I watched first and it was really fascinating. So maybe you'd like to watch it too. Yeah. 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 Cool. So, you know, back to what got me interested in all of this stuff in the first place, I, I would, I would um, peg it to Carl Sagan's uh, Cosmos series, which came out in 1979, I think. And um, so, yeah, I was 11 when I watched that. Um, and I know that there was a newer one that came out with, uh, what's his name, Degrassi Tyson. And I, I tried to watch, I watched a couple of episodes of that and I didn't like it as much. Maybe I should have stuck with it, but... Um, I really enjoyed Carl Sagan's original series from the 1979. Um, and that, that, that kind of got me um, interested in, you know, because there was a, um, an episode in there. I remember it had a guy riding around on a motor scooter and it was talking about the red Doppler shift and the blue Doppler shift. And, you know, when, when, when something's coming towards you, it's shifted to the red. And when it's shifted, when it's going away from you, it's shifted to the so the, the, the red and um, Einstein started to think about, you know, what that would do with relativity and light. And, and that's when he, he started to piece together inconsistencies in, in how um, traditional physics um, would handle the propagation of light and, you know, things moving um, at, at speeds close to the speed of light and what that would look like. Um, and, and so, yeah, he was walking around Einstein's home village, uh, sort of speculating how he, how he came up with this. And, and so it was that, again, that humanistic sort of adding some personality to the physics. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I would recommend, you know, as you, you've given me a recommendation, right. I would recommend that you go back to Carl Sagan's Cosmos and, and watch a couple episodes of that. So the, it's you called know, Cosmos? It's, yeah. So that, you know, there was a there was a reboot of it that came out just a couple of years ago, but I'm I'm suggesting you go back to the original one. You know, and it's and it's it, it's going to be dated, of course, but mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I still recommend it regardless. Sure, yeah, we'll look into it. Speaking of Neil deGrasse Tyson, his podcast is really good um, for I guess kind of newbies into space and stuff. Like I really uh -huh. enjoyed it, but I know pretty much nothing. You might get bored of it, but yeah, maybe the listeners could enjoy it. Sure. So I think that's it. Let's wrap up for today. Okay. You a closing statement, maybe? No, no, no. It's just been very fun talking to you guys. Yeah, yeah. same here. I think you're a fascinating storyteller. Absolutely. It runs yeah, it the genes for him. Like, every story is so powerful. I really don't think we even needed questions for you. We should give you the mic and just go. And you could have just gone through the whole story of everything. Uh, so now, now, now you're saying I'm a blabbermouth. That's what you're saying, right? <laughs> No, no, no. This is a podcast. That's what we're looking for. Uh, but yeah, thank you so much for being here. Great time. Thank yeah, you. my pleasure.